The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There were a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, Boris Johnson's trying to get the workers back into the offices, but it has to be said, he got off to a pretty slow start yesterday. Pupils began returning to school, but parents didn't really follow suit as a Transport for London's high-frequency travel data showed London passenger numbers only rose a little. Yeah, I love that data. There's a very empty looking, I think it's Waterloo, not too sure, on the front page of the Daily Mail. I forgot what these stations look like. It's a spanner in the works, of course, for the government, which has been calling for employers to ensure offices are made virus safe, launching a £2 billion kickstart scheme, which is something you'll hear all about today. It's hoping to boost the economy after figures showed that there were almost 538,000 people between the ages of 16 to 24 on universal credit in July. So it's about getting young people back into work. The Work and Pensions Secretary, Therese Coffey, says employers need support as well, though. We also recognise that they need some a boost, and I believe Kickstart will help give them that boost with effectively six months of uh, um, employment, uh, which they can help a young person, but it will also help them as a business. But what's really, of course, tying down the economy to a large extent is still lockdowns. That's why the government's lifted restrictions in parts of northern England, despite objections from local authorities. But yesterday, the Scottish government announced a ban on household gatherings in three local authorities in the greater Glasgow and Clyde area for the next two weeks, essentially affecting 800,000 people. Now, for more, we're joined by Kirsten Oswald, the SNP's Deputy Westminster Leader and MP for East Renfrewshire. Kirsten, welcome to the programme. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon's been quite uh, vociferous in her criticisms of the Westminster government, but... Uh, after a period when things have been going better, you do seem to be getting more flare-ups now in Scotland. Well, I think Nicola Sturgeon has been um, cautious and thoughtful in how she's dealt with it, and I'm, I'm grateful for that as uh, the local MP of one of the areas uh, where we do have some new restrictions. So I, I would certainly rather that we took action sooner rather than later, um, and that we took that on an evidence led basis. So um, unfortunately, it does appear that people have been um, having social gatherings in their homes, and that has been the cause of a, an upturn in the rate of COVID um, in areas including my own. Um, and therefore, the, the guidance is that people may not do that. Um, I, I think that it, it's really helpful to have that decision taken quickly. Um, and I hope that that has the desired effect. Kirsten, I've got to ask you, as somebody who, as you say, is in a constituency where this is playing out, how do you enforce something like this? How do you make sure that people don't have those meetings in their homes that, as you say, are linked to these rising numbers of infections? I do think that people generally have been 
really quite fantastic in terms of how they've dealt with all of the restrictions that this really challenging period has um, caused for all the different aspects of their lives. So I, I do expect that despite, you know, how challenging and, and frustrating it is for everyone, because, you know, there's no doubt about that, that people will appreciate that the reason that these restrictions are in place is because we want to make sure that we keep people safe and well. So I, I don't really foresee there being a, a particular challenge in terms of adherence, but I, I do sympathise that, you know, everybody would really like to see things uh, back to some kind of normal, but the only way we can achieve that is to make sure that we deal promptly and effectively with any issues such as this. Well, some people might, might look at Scotland and say, well, your your uh, school kids have been back in the classroom for a couple of weeks now, at least. Um, interestingly, yeah. more than 100,000 pupils in Scotland appear to be absent from school, although only 22,000 uh, have actually been recorded as COVID-related. So uh, are people perhaps keeping their children back from your schools because they're worried? Um, no, not that I'm aware of. I, I don't see that. I'm a parent myself. I have two children in school um, in my constituency and I, I've um, I've seen some, some really thoughtful and sensible measures that schools have put into place. I think that that's reassuring for parents like myself. Uh, we, we know that the schools are looking to how best to keep our children in education, which is so important um, you know, for, for their um, future, but also just for their general well-being, but to do so in an environment that's um, safe and healthy. I'm encouraged that we, we've also continued to look at the advice, so um, face coverings um, in uh, common areas um, are in place in secondary schools and on public transport, and that I think is a key issue as we go forward, that the government um, in Scotland has been very, very um, positive and, and um, helpful in terms of looking at what is the evidence telling us and acting based upon that evidence. I think that's very helpful and reassuring for parents and also for the general public. But is it not detrimental to, to these children who are not turning up to school? I think it's something like 85% where the uh, the occupancy rate or the attendance rate is at. So that's 15% of people of children not going to school. Does something need to be done about that? The schools in general are, are very, very focused on making sure that children are in attendance as and when they should be. And, you know, again, I know as a, a parent that uh, that's how they operate and I, I welcome that. That's how they will continue to operate. But plainly, as we, we all know, we're in a, a very different situation now. So it may very well be the case that people are isolating, that they're not able to attend school because they or family members are isolating. I think that that's understood, but wherever it is possible, people absolutely um, do want to see children able to access education, which is so important for them going forward. These are groups of children, after all, who've already experienced significant disruption. Um, you know, some of them are sitting exams or moving from primary to secondary school, for instance, or would have been, um, you know, looking to have particular, um, you know, particular situations at school that they've not been able to have. So, it's really important for us to try and take every measure that we can to keep the young folk in school. Kirsten, let me move you on to another subject, which obviously is key. You are obviously a member of the Scottish National Party. In your blood is the idea of independence. And now uh, Nicola Sturgeon has put again the question of whether there should be another referendum. But this is uh, this is cloud cuckoo land. I mean, unless you get Westminster support, you can't have another referendum. And there's no sign of it. So isn't this all a bit pointless? 
Uh, no, and it's not really up to Westminster, of course. That's that's the thing. It's not for Boris Johnson or for Westminster or for anyone, actually, to tell the people in Scotland that they shouldn't have the right to determine their own future. That's a decision for the people in Scotland. We can see a sustained position in the polls now for um, people in Scotland supporting Scottish independence. And I would um, think it would be ill-advised for any Westminster government to seek to go down that road. They, they well, wouldn't be able to sustain it and it wouldn't do them any good. Well, no, but it would I mean, you say it's not up to Westminster, but constitutionally it is. Uh, you cannot have another referendum unless the Westminster Parliament approves it. That's not going to happen. So, I mean, you know, you may say, well, it should be another way around, but that is the reality, isn't it? I don't think it will be. I don't think that I, you know, as I say, I don't think that that's a sustainable position from Boris Johnson. I think that he himself will recognise that uh, whatever outcome uh, he hopes to have, there would be a, a particular view taken in Scotland of a Prime Minister who sought to tell the people of a, a country that it was not them, but he who had the right to decide their future. So Scotland must and, and will have that opportunity to decide that's the right way forward for people in Scotland to make that decision. So I, I don't think that uh, Westminster can sustain that at all. What about the economic backdrop? I was looking at the recent data out of Scotland. 8.6% of GDP was the budget deficit compared to 7.4% a year earlier. Uh, this is for the year ending April the 5th. So it only takes into account the very beginning of the of the virus crisis and the UK figure, 2.5%, which leads you to the conclusion that surely the economic case for independence has never been weaker. No, I don't think that's the case. I, I think that actually I would turn that on its head entirely. Um, the way that the Scottish economy works is very largely driven by the levers which are pulled by Westminster. We have not got the ability to use these economic levers ourselves. And that's uh, both frustrating and detrimental to Scotland. Um, you can see other independent countries all over the world who are able to make their own decisions and look at the best way to deal with their economies and we just simply do not have the ability to do that. This is plainly not working for Scotland if we're looking at that situation as part of the UK. So I think that more than ever, actually, this is the time for us to look at a different future where we'll be able to make the decisions in Scotland, which are the right ones for our people and our economy. But you have to convince the people who you want to vote for independence that Scotland could work financially on its own and, and and the evidence really isn't there is it i mean how are you going to convince them well as you as you'll have um, noted and uh, i certainly noted there's um, been some um interesting movements in the polls which are telling us that there is a sustained support um, a majority support for scottish independence and that there are continued discussions all over Scotland between people just in everyday situations about what they see happening at Westminster and about the opportunities that an independent Scotland would bring. So, of course, um, it is essential and, and important that we have these discussions. And, of course, we would always want to bring as many people on board as possible. That's, that's the job of any politician with any proposition that they want people to uh, take up. But I think that it's uh, clear to me that 
things are moving forward and people are taking a very different view. And no surprise when you look at the the challenges which are coming along um, in terms of Brexit. Scotland didn't vote for Brexit. Scotland voted very strongly to remain in the EU. And yet we see ourselves being dragged at at this particularly challenging time off of the the Brexit cliff edge. We see ourselves unable to continue the furlough scheme because we don't have economic levers to do that. There are significant challenges that the proposition of the union is facing. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. We start with an accusation that Boris Johnson is being heartless in declining to meet families whose loved ones have died from coronavirus. So there are campaigners from the COVID-19 bereaved Families for Justice who are saying that they wrote to the Prime Minister five times to request a meeting. Uh, They were asked about the uh, letters, the Prime Minister replying to reporters saying he would of course meet anyone bereaved by COVID-19. But then days later, he wrote to the group saying he was unable to meet them. So a difficult situation playing out there. Feels like it, doesn't it? Meanwhile, in the north, there are lockdowns or have been, but they've been lifted, which is interesting, uh, despite objections apparently from local authorities. Two households can now meet in parts of Greater Manchester, Lancashire and West Yorkshire for the first time in weeks. But council leaders in Bolton and Trafford have called for measures to remain in place, as the virus infection rate is still pretty high. Wajid Khan, who's the mayor of Burnley, says there's a lot more the government could be doing to help. I think we are in a very transformed situation compared to a few months ago when no kids were at school, when we didn't have quarantine, when we didn't have test and trace. I think overall we have put ourselves in a much better position to deal with the challenges that we're going to face over the winter. The mayor of Burnley there, Wajid Khan, in a situation where it feels a bit like whack-a-mole, doesn't it? Every time you get one area coming out of lockdown, we get Scotland, parts of Scotland now going in. It really does feel endless. And then we've got this story, the end of October, potentially becoming a crisis point for people who rely on government wage support, furlough, that sort of thing, for bills and mortgage payments. There's a new report from the Standard Life Foundation that says that more than half of the 3.7 million households who are given a break from bills during the pandemic are going to struggle then to repay their debts when all of those arrangements end on October the 31st. The CEO's Mubin Hack has called it a cliff edge situation and says regulators and lenders are going to have to think about how to avoid all of these people, large numbers of people facing enforcement action. But it's also a problem for the government because they've spent all this money keeping people afloat. If they then don't transition sort of back into normality, if they don't have the jobs and they don't have the money, that still is a very urgent problem for number 10 and for number 11. Yes, and they have to reach in their piggy bank to try to sort it out. And talking of piggy banks, Now, do you remember 15 years ago, a certain amount of money was put aside for all children of a certain age in the UK? And after 15 years, an almost £9 billion piggy bank is ready to be raided. 
Teens that turned 18 yesterday began collecting payments from an experimental savings programme which was put in place when Tony Blair was Prime Minister. The Child Trust Fund accounts were set up by the state with initial grants ranging from £250 for children in well-off families to £500 for those in low-income households. Now they provide every person born in the UK between September the 1st 2002 and January the 1st 2011 with a tax-free windfall to start their adult lives. My son's got one but he can't have it for at least another year. What can you do? I'd never heard of this. What a great time for it to mature as well. Talk about needing money to start your adult life and you've got all this going on. Brilliant. Now it feels like the start of term time doesn't it? Well it certainly is of course in many schools. It definitely is at Westminster MPs back in the house but doesn't really feel like it in the cities, despite the PM's wishes. There are still, frankly, empty streets. Let's pick up on these threads with our regular Wednesday drop-in with Bloomberg Opinions' Therese Raphael. Therese, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being back with us. Now, you can lead a worker to the office, but you can't make them actually sit down and type. Boris Johnson doesn't seem to be able to produce produce the great return, does he? Yeah, it's very different from getting kids back to school, isn't it, where you can sort of uh, order schools to be open the case for getting kids back to school is just overwhelming on so many counts. But getting workers back to offices is an entirely different matter. For one, there are still health concerns, maybe less to do with offices themselves, where social distancing practices, deep cleaning, mask wearing, all those things are, are being put into practice. But workers might still have reservations about getting on public transport. For example, we know that uh, for TFL is down uh, 72% uh, from last year on you know, people riding the undergrad. And then there's you know, the fact that's just unavoidable, which is that work from home actually works for a lot of people, and it works for some companies. We've heard from J.P. Morgan and Linklater's um, in in the rec- in recent weeks saying that they will incorporate permanent work from home uh, abilities within their within their structure, so they may have uh, workers alternating in and some working from home certain days a week, and to all of that suggests that what we are seeing now is not simply a kind of temporary uh, response to fears of the virus, to the lockdown, but perhaps a paradigm shift in how people work, some of which is going to be structural. We're also seeing it from the increase in purchases of homes and interest in moving homes outside the city. And the question is, what does the government do about that? Because it can throw a lot of money at getting people back into offices. It can cajole them, as we saw with a recent Daily Telegraph headline saying, you know, get back to work or you might lose your job. But it doesn't really have, you know, a lot of a lot of power to do much and it, it you know one might argue as, as i certainly would that it's not really the government's place to tell companies um or workers exactly how they should transact so i think this is you know it, it's clearly a worry for boris johnson because the hollowing out of city centers uh, it increases unemployment it could widen inequalities it's a it's a disruption yeah. and a shock that will need to be softened I, I mean, full disclosure, I'm still very much sat at home, but that's the the, the return to the office or the attempted return to the are. office at least. <laughs> yeah. What about tax? This is a debate that sort of started over the weekend looking ahead to how we're going to pay for all of this pandemic borrowing. And I feel like everything has been brought up. National insurance, fuel duty, foreign aid, capital gains. Mm. There's something for everyone to get angry about, right? Yeah, so in the, we are in the weird, weird world of politics by leak on this, where you have you know, various ministries 
trying to steer the Treasury uh, away from kind of their pot of money. So you can see all this playing out um, in, in the UK media. And it's true that there will be Treasury mandarins scratching their heads and putting pencil to paper about how to plug the $2.7 trillion debt. But there, you know, there are two questions here. One is, what do they really need to do now at a time when the cost of borrowing is very cheap, when there's no vaccine, we are still mid-pandemic, do they really need to be raising uh, revenue right now in a way that might uh, discourage investment and, and, and kind of change how businesses transact? And I would think that Rishi Sunak has a little bit of time here. He doesn't need to be making big headline tax-raising measures right away. At the same time, they're going to want to signal that it's not all spending, that they are uh, they are deserving of the Tory reputation for fiscal prudence. And what could they do? They could look at corporate taxation, uh, which they could bring a little bit more into line with international practice that will outrage traditional Tory voters and MPs. Uh, but it's being it's being discussed. But they could also try a sort of more stealthy approach uh, where certain taxes are, are raised on the wealthy or they could try to increase um, the range of expenditure on which taxes apply. My guess is we are not going to see any uh, you know, major shifts in the Tory approach to taxation in this autumn budget. But that's not going to stop people um, speculating and trying to push Rishi Sunak in one direction or another. And it also helps that Boris Johnson can claim at the end of it that uh, he was the guardian of traditional conservative fiscal students and did not allow uh, that to be kind of thrown away in the, uh, you know, in the middle of the pandemic. So um, I think it, we're, you know, we're still very much in the realm of politics here. Well, speaking of the realm of politics and the worse it gets in a way for Boris Johnson with all these difficulties, the better it seems to get for Labour under Keir Starmer. Now, your colleague Matt Singh had a great piece over the weekend about how Labour's really biting at Boris's heels. Although I suppose in the end, as long as the Tories still have an 80-seat majority, it's kind of academic. It is for now, but I think uh, Boris Johnson will not be too dismissive of polls showing that uh, Labour has come from 26 points behind the Tories in the last election, I think, to within seven points in some polls showing them neck and neck. So while there's no election on the horizon, um, I think Keir Starmer's dramatically increased personal ratings over, say, Jeremy Corbyn, the way he is hammering the government on the issue of competency, and especially the way he's getting the cultural messaging right. In Britain, voters are more conservative on social issues than many of the media or political establishment. And Labour's lost voters, those that moved to the Conservatives in December, uh, as Matt Singh has argued, come from that conservative side of the spectrum. And Starmer's really latched onto that and is getting his messaging right. So, you know, it's a, it's a good start for this new Labour leader, uh, whether it will have an impact on uh, what Johnson can do really depends on whether Johnson's own party, um, you know, put the squeeze on him when it comes to, uh, say, taxation and other policies that, that he needs to keep those former Labour voters happy. I mean, just just very briefly, the issue I see with Labour is that they're not standing by any firm policies at this point. Is it just because we're in this weird corona time or is that something that could bite them later down the line? Well, I guess it's the luxury of the opposition that you can oppose the government, but you're not really uh, held to account for policies of your own. So I don't think Starmer is going to want to be pinned down to, say, a particular 
um, economic policy agenda, particularly when the um, you know, when the manifesto they ran on in the last election was so disastrous for labor. So I think he's going to take the time to keep the focus on Boris Johnson, what he's doing wrong, reform the party from within, and slowly work out labor's positions on a number of issues without really being forced to by any electoral uh, you know, calendar right now. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.